Section 35 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 17, Part 2, Through China. Chin Fueng, my next halting place, forms something of a crescent on the west shore of the river, and is distinguished by a seven-storied pagoda at the southern extremity of its curvature. As seen from the east bank, the city and its background of reddish hills, two peaks of which rise to the respectable height of, I should judge, two thousand feet, is not without certain pretensions to beauty. Many of the houses on the river front are built over the water on piles, and broad flights of stone steps lead down to the water. The usual boat population occupy a swarm of sampans anchored before the city, while hundreds of others are moving hither and thither. The water is intensely blue, and the broad reaches of band are dazzlingly white. On either bank are dark patches of feathery bamboo the white, blue and green, the pagoda, the city with its towering pawn-houses, and the whole flanked by red clay hills, forms a picture that certainly is not wanting in life and color. The quarters assigned me at the Hittim here are again upstairs, and my room companion is an attenuated opium-smoker, who is apparently a permanent lodger. This apartment is gained by a ladder, and after submitting to much annoyance from the obtrusive crowds below, invading our quarters, my companion drives them all out with a loud lash of his tongue, and then draws up the only avenue of communication. He is engaged in cooking his supper and in washing dirty dishes. When the crowd below gets too noisy and clamorous, he steps to the opening and coolly treats them to a basin of dishwater. This he repeats a number of times during the evening, saving his dishwater for that special purpose. The air is reeking with smoke and disagreeable odors from below, where cooking is going on and pigs wallow in filth in a rear apartment. The back room of a Chinese inn is nearly always a pigsty, and a noisome place on general principles. Later in the evening a few privileged characters are permitted to come up and the room quickly changes into a regular opium den. A tough day's journey and two previous nights of wakefulness enable me to fall asleep, notwithstanding the evil smells, the presence of the opium-smoking visitors, and the grunting pigs and talkative humans down below. During the day I have sprained my right knee, and it becomes painful in the night and wakes me up. In the morning my way is made through the waking city with a painful limp, that gives rise to much unsympathetic giggling among the crowd at my heels. Perhaps they think all Fangues thus hobble along. Their giggling, however, is doubtless evidence of the well-known pitiless disposition of the Chinese. The sentiments of pity and consideration for the sufferings of others are a well-nigh invisible quality of John Chinaman's character, and as I limp slowly along, I mentally picture myself with a broken leg or serious illness alone among these people. A fangway with his leg broken, a fangway lying at the point of death. Why, the whole city would want to witness such an extraordinary sight. 
there would be no keeping them out one would be the center of a tumultuous rabble day and night the river contains long reaches leading in a totally contrary direction to what i know my general course to be my objective point is a little east of north but for miles this morning i am headed considerably south of the rising sun there is nothing for it however but to keep the foot trail that now follows along the river bank conforming to all its multifarious crooks and angles every mile or two the path is overhung by a big bamboo hedge behind which is hidden a village the character of these little riverside villages varies from peaceful agricultural and fishing communities to nests of river pirates and hard characters generally who covertly prey on the commerce of the pijao and commit depredations in the surrounding country a glimpse of me is generally caught by someone behind the hedge as i ride or trundle past shouts of the fangway the fangway and screams of laughter at the prospect of seeing one of those queer creatures immediately follow the discovery the gabble and laughter and hurrying from the houses to the hedge the hasty scrambling through the little wicket gates all occurs with a flutter and noisy squabble that suggests a flock of excited geese a few miles above chin Hueng, the river enters a rocky gorge and the marvelous beauty of the scenery rivets me to the spot in wondering contemplation for an hour it is the same picture of rocky mountains blue water junks bridges temples and people one sometimes sees on sets of chinaware never was water so intensely blue or sand so dazzlingly white as the pijao at the entrance to this gorge this sunny morning on its sky-blue bosom float junks and sampans their curious sails appearing and disappearing around a bend in the canyon. The brown battlemented cliffs are relieved by scattering pines, and in the interstices by dense thickets of bamboo. Temples, pagodas, and a village complete a scene that will be long remembered as one of the loveliest bits of scenery the whole world round. The scene is preeminently characteristic, and after seeing it, one no longer misunderstands the Chinaman, who persists in thinking his country the great middle kingdom of landscape beauty and sunshine, compared to which all others are regions of mist and snow. Across the creeks, which occasionally join issue with the river, are erected frail and wobbly bamboo foot-rails. Some of these are evidently private enterprises, as an ancient celestial is usually on hand for the collection of tiny toll narrow bridges rude steps cut in the face of the cliffs trails along narrow ledges over rocky ridges down across gulches and anon through loose shale on ticklishly sloping banks characterize the passage through the canyon the sun is broiling hot and my knees swollen and painful it is barely possible to crawl along at a snail's pace by keeping my game leg stiff bending the knee is attended with agony frequent rests are necessary and an examination reveals my knee badly inflamed hours are consumed in scrambling for three or four miles up and down steps and over the most abominable course a bicycle was ever dragged carried upended and lugged over at the end of that time i reach a temple occupying a romantic position in a rocky defile and where a flight of steps leads down to the water's edge 
all semblance of anything in the nature of a continuous path terminates at the temple and hailing a sampan bound upstream i obtain passage to the northern extremity of the canyon the sampan is towed by a team of seven coolies harnessed to a small strong rope made of bamboo splint it is interesting yet painful to see these men clamoring like goats about the rocky cliffs sometimes as much as a hundred feet above the water one of the number does nothing else but throw the rope over protuberant points of rock one would naturally imagine that chinese enterprise would be sufficient to construct something like a decent towpath through this canyon considering the number of boats towed through it daily but everything in china seems to be done by the main strength and awkwardness of individuals the boatmen seem honest-hearted fellows at noon they invite me to participate in their frugal meal of rice and turnips passing sampans are greeted by the crew of our boat with the intelligence that a fangway is aboard the news being invariably conveyed with a droll ha ha and received with the same indeed the average chinese riverman or agriculturist the simple-hearted children of the water and the soil seem to regard the fangway as a creature so remarkably comical that the mere mention of him causes them to laugh near the end of the canyon the boat is moored at a village for the day and my knee feeling much better from the rest i pursue my course up the bank of the river the bank is level in a general sense but much cut up with small tributary creeks while i am resting on the bank of one of these creeks partly hidden behind a clump of bamboo a slave woman carrying her mistress pickaback appears upon the scene catching sight of me the golden lily utters a little cry of alarm and issues hurried orders to her maid the latter wheels round and scuttles back along the path with her frightened burden both maid and golden lily no doubt very thankful at finding themselves unpursued a few minutes after their hasty flight three men approach my resting-place with pitchforks the frightened females have probably told them of the presence of some queer-looking object lurking behind the bushes and like true heroes they have shouldered their pitchforks and sallied forth to investigate a whoop and a faint from me would either put them to flight or precipitate a conflict as is readily seen from the extreme cautiousness of their advance as i remained perfectly still however they approach by short stages and with many stops for consultation until near enough to satisfy themselves of my peaceful character they loiter around until my departure when they follow behind for a few hundred yards watching me narrowly until i am past their own little cluster of houses it is almost dark when i arrive at the next village prepared to seek such accommodations for the night as the place affords if any the people however seem decidedly inclined to give me the cold shoulder eyeing me suspiciously from a respectful distance instead of clustering as usual close about me being pretty tired and hungry and knowing absolutely nothing of the distance to the next place i endeavor to cultivate their friendship by smiles and by addressing the nearest youngster in polite greetings of chin chin all this proves of no avail they seem one and all to be laboring under the impression that my appearance is of evil portent to themselves 
perchance some social calamity they have just been visited with is attributed in their superstitious minds to the fell influence of the foreign devil who has so suddenly bobbed up in their midst just at this unhappy inauspicious moment peradventure some stray and highly exaggerated bit of news in regard to fengui aggression and tongquin the french tongquin expedition has happened to reach the little interior village this very day and the excited people see in me an emissary of destruction here for the diabolical purpose of spying out their country a dozen reasons however might be here advanced and all be far wide of the truth whatever their hostility is all about is a mystery to me the innocent object of sundry scowls and angry gestures one individual contemplates me for a minute with unconcealed aversion and then breaks out into a torrent of angry words and excited gestures from all appearances it behooves me to be clearing out ere the pent-up feelings of the people find vent in some aggressive manner as a result of this person's incitant eloquence greatly puzzled to account for this unpleasant reception i quietly take myself off it is now getting pretty dark and considering the unfortunate condition of my knee the situation is to say the least annoying it is not without apprehensions of being followed that i leave the village and ere i am two hundred yards away torches are observed moving rapidly about and soon loud shouts of fengui fengui tell me that a number of men are in pursuit darkness favors my retreat and scrambling down the river bank i shape my course across the sand and shallow side channels to a small island thickly covered with bamboo the location of which is now barely outlined against the lingering streaks of daylight in the western sky half an hour is consumed in reaching this but no small satisfaction is derived from seeing the flaming torches of my pursuers continue on up the bank the dense bamboo thickets afford an excellent hiding-place, providing my divergence is not suspected. A little farther upstream, on the bank, are the lights of another village, and as I crouch here in the darkness, I can see the torches of the pursuing party entering this village, and can hear them making shouting inquiries of their neighbors about the foreign devil. The thicket is alive with ravenous mosquitoes that issue immediately their peculiar policy of assurance against falling asleep. Unappeased hunger, mosquitoes, and the perilousness of the situation occupy my attention for some hours, when seeing nothing further of the vengeful aspirants for my gore, I drag my weary way upstream, through sand and shallow water keeping in the river-bed for several miles i finally regain the bank and although my inflamed knee treats me to a twinge of agony at every step i steadily persevere till morning an hour or two of morning light brings me to the town of guangzhou after an awful tugging through sand-hills unbridged ravines and water hardly able to stand from fatigue and the pain of my knee the desperate nature of the road or more correctly the entire absence of anything of the kind and the disquieting incident of the night awaken me to a realizing sense of my helplessness should the people of guangzhou prove to be hostile conscious of my inability to run or ride savagely hungry and desperately tired 
I enter Guangzhou with the spirit of a hunted animal at bay, with revolver pulled round to the front ready to hand, and half expecting occasion to use it in defense of my life, I grimly speculate on the number of my cartridges and the probability of each one bagging a sore-eyed celestial ere my own lonely and reluctant ghost is yielded up. All this, fortunately, is found to be superfluous speculation, for the good people of Guangzhou prove, at least passively, friendly. A handful of tsin divided among the youngsters, and a general spendthrift scatterment of ten cents worth of the same base currency among the stall-keepers for chow-chow, heightens their friendly interest in me to an appreciable extent. Chow-chou-fu is the next city marked on my itinerary, but as Guangzhou is not on my map, I have no means of judging whether Chow-chou-fu is four li upstream or forty. All attempts to obtain some idea of the distance from the natives result in the utter bewilderment of both questioned and querist. No amount of counting on fingers, or marking on paper, or interrogative arching of eyebrows, or repetition of chow-chou-fu-li, sheds a glimmer of light on the mind of the most intelligent-looking shopkeeper in Guangzhou, concerning my wants. Yet, withal, he courteously bears with my, to him, idiotic pantomime, and barbarous pronunciation, and repeats parrot-like after me, chow-chou-fu-li, chow-chou-fu-li, with sundry beaming smiles and friendly smirks. Far easier, however, is it to make them understand that I want to go to that city by boat. The loquacious owner of a twenty-foot sampan puts in his appearance as soon as my want is ascertained, and favors me with an unpunctuated speech of some five minutes' duration. For fear I shouldn't quite understand the tenor of his remarks, he insists on thrusting his yellow Mongolian fizz within an inch or two of mine own. At the end of five minutes I thrust my fingers in my ears out of sheer consideration for his vocal organs, and turn away. But the next moment he is fronting me again, and repeating himself with ever-increasing volubility. Finding my dullness quite impenetrable, he searches out another loquacious mortal, and by the aid of the tiny beam-scales every Chinaman carries for weighing broken silver, they finally make it understood that for six big rounds, dollars, he will convey me in his boat to Chow-Chu-Fu. Understanding this, I promptly engage his services. Bundles of Jaw-Sticks rice, fish, pork, and a jar of shamshu, rice arak, are taken aboard, and by ten o'clock we are under way. Two men, named respectively Ah Sun and Yong Bua, a woman and a baby of eighteen months comprise the company aboard. Ah Sun, being but an inconsequential wage-worker, at once assumes the onerous duties of Toman. Yong Bua, husband, father, and sole proprietor of the sampan, manipulates the rudder, which is in front, and occasionally assists Aswan by poling. The boat-wife stands at the stern and regulates the length of the tow-line. The baby puts in the first few hours in wondering contemplation of myself. The strange river life of China is all about us. Small fishing-boats are everywhere plying their calling. They are constructed with a central chamber full of auger-holes for the free admittance of water, in which the fish are conveyed alive to market, or imprisoned during the owner's pleasure. 
big freight sampans float past propelled by oars if going downstream and by the combined efforts of tow-line and poles if against the current the propelling poles are fitted with neatly carved crutch trees to fit the shoulder the polers sometimes numbering as many as a dozen walk back and forth along side planks and encourage themselves with cries of ha e ha e ha e a peculiar and indescribable inflection would lead one hearing and not seeing these boatmen to fancy himself listening to a flight of brants in stormy weather young bois polling by himself gives utterance to a prolonged cry of etta 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 ah, ee every time he hustles along the side plank much of the scenery along the river is lovely in the extreme and at dark we cast anchor in a smooth silent reach of the river just within the frowning gateway of a rocky canyon dark masses of rock tower skyward five hundred feet in a perpendicular wall casting a dark shadow over the twilight shimmer of the water in the north the darksome prospect is invested with a lurid glow apparently from some large fire the canyon immediately about our anchoring place is alive with moving torches representing the restless population of the river and on the banks clustering points of light here and there denote the locality of a village the last few miles has been severe work for poor Aswan, clambering among rocks fit only for the footsteps of a goat. He sticks to the tow-line manfully to the end, but wading out to the boat when overheated causes him to be seized with violent cramps all over. In his agony he rolls about the deck and implores young Bois to put him out of his misery forthwith. His case is evidently urgent, and young Bois and his wife proceed to administer the most heroic treatment hot sumshoe is first poured down his throat and rubbed on his joints then he is rolled over on his stomach young bois then industriously flagellates him in the bend of the knees with a flat bamboo and his wife scrapes him vigorously down the spine with the sharp edge of a porcelain bowl aswan groans and winces under this barbarous treatment but with solicitous upbraidings they hold him down until they have scraped and pounded him black and blue almost from head to foot then they turn him over on his back for a change of program a thick joint of bamboo resembling a quart measure is planted against his stomach lighted paper is then inserted beneath and the cup held firmly for a moment when it adheres of its own accord this latter instrument is the chinese equivalent of our cupping glass like many other inventions it was probably in use among them ages before anything of the kind was known to us its application to the stomach for the relief of cramps would seem to indicate the possession of drawing powers i take it to be a substitute for mustard plasters while the wife attends to this young bois pinches him severely all over the throat and breast converting all that portion of his anatomy into little blue ridges by the time they get through with him his last estate seems a good deal worse than his first but the change may have saved his life before retiring for the night lighted jostics are stuck in the bow of the sampan and lighted paper is waved about to propitiate the spirit of the waters and of the night small saucers of rice boiled turnip 
and peanut oil are also solemnly presented to the tutelary gods to enlist their active sympathies as an offset against the fell designs of mischievous spirits falling asleep under the soothing influence of these extraordinary precautions for our safety and a supper of rice ginger and fresh fish i slumber peacefully until well under way next morning ah swan is stiff and sore all over but he bravely returns to his post and under the combined efforts of pole and tow-line we speed along against a swift current at a pace that is almost visible to the naked eye this morning i purchase a splendid trout weighing seven or eight pounds for about twenty cents off this we make a couple of quite excellent meals observing my awkward attempts to pick up pieces of fish with the chopsticks the good thoughtful boatwife takes a bone hairpin out of her sleek oily black hair and offers it to me to use as a fork before noon we emerge into a more open country straight ahead can be seen an eight-storied pagoda reaching the pagoda we pass on the opposite shore the town of yangtai fleets of big junks sail gaily downstream laden with bales and packages of merchandise from chao chu fu nam huang and other manufacturing points up the river others resemble floating hayricks bearing huge cargoes of coarse hay and pine needles down for the manufacture of paper several war junks are anchored before yang tai unlike the peaceful merchantmen on the chujiao they are armed with but a single cannon they are however superior vessels compared with other craft on the river and are manned with crews of twenty to thirty theatrical-looking characters rows of muskets and boarding pikes are observed and conspicuous above all else are several large and handsome flags of the graceful triangular shape peculiar to china the crew of these warlike vessels are uniformed in the gayest of red and in the middle of their backs and breasts are displayed white bull's-eyes about twelve inches in diameter the object of these big white circular patches appears to be the presentation of a suitable place for the conspicuous display of big characters denoting the district or city to which they belong or in other words labels the wicked and sarcastic fangways in the treaty ports however render a far different explanation they say that a chinese soldier always misses a bull's-eye when he shoots at it under no circumstances does he score a bull's-eye observing this the authorities concluded that fangui soldiers were tarred with the same unhappy feather with true asiatic astuteness they therefore conceived and carried out the brilliant idea of decorating all celestial warriors with bull's-eyes front and rear as a measure of protection against the bullets of the fangui soldiers in battle Aswun becomes sick and weary at noon and is taken aboard Tangbo and his better half taking alternate turns at the line toward evening the river makes a big sweep to the southeast bringing the prevailing north wind round to our advantage if advantage it can be called in blowing us pretty well south when our destination lies north the sail is hoisted and the crew confines itself to steering and pulling the boat clear of bars poor us one is subjected to further clinical maltreatment this evening as we lay at anchor before nuo fugung 
while we are eating rice and pork and listening to the sounds of revelry aboard the big passenger junks anchored nearby he is writhing and groaning with pain he is too stiff and sore and exhausted to do anything in the morning the woman goes out to pull and the babe makes rome howl with little intermission till she comes back the boatwoman seems an industrious wifely soul young bois probably paid as high as forty dollars for her at that price i should say she is a decided bargain occasionally when young bois cruelly orders her overboard to take a hand at the tow-line or to help shove the sampan off a sand ridge she enters a playful demurrer but an angry look an angry word or a cheerful suggestion of corporeal suasion and she hops lightly into the water end of section thirty five Recording by Pamela Krantz.